0: In 1865, Phillips Brooks, an American minister, traveled to Israel. He went from horseback from Bethlehem to Jerusalem on Christmas Eve, and he wrote these words, Before dark, we rode out of town to the field where they say the shepherds saw the star. It is a fenced place of ground with a cave in it. Somewhere in those fields we rode through, the shepherds must have been. As we passed, the shepherds were still keeping watch over their flocks or leading them home to the fold. That horse ride provided the backdrop for Brooks to write a poem for children. And as he wrote this poem, he began to think about this. It should be set to music. He wanted to capture his feelings, and instead of simply becoming a children's poem, it became a song that we all know so well. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes of... And fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Dr. Watson, the uh, the hymnologist, not of Sherlock Holmes fame, summed it up well when he said, Not only does the hymn beautifully describe the little town asleep in the December night, it also gracefully modulates from a description of Christmas into an examination of the meaning of Christmas. First in its encouragement of charity and faith, and then into the coming of Christ into the human heart. Some years later, as Brooks lay dying, he refused to be seen even by his closest friends because his physical state was so distressing. However, when Robert Ingersoll came by to visit, a man known to history... As a famous anti-Christian propagandist, Brooks allowed him to come in right away. Ingersoll remarked, I appreciate this very much, especially when you aren't even letting your closest friends see you. Brooks responded, well, I'm confident of seeing them in the next world, but this may be my last chance to see you. Last chances. Most of us think in terms of second chances. We all want second chances, and God is the God of second chances. Most of us, in fact, have had countless second chances. I mean, think of David, and he even wrote about one. Create in me a clean heart, O God. In Psalm 85, the psalmist cries out to God, Revive us again. Renee Napier lost her 20-year-old daughter, Megan, to a drunk driver, a man by the name of Eric Smallridge. His lawyer advised him when they went to court, show no emotion, bad advice. The jury took his lack of emotion as a lack of remorse, found him guilty, and sentenced him to 18 years in prison. But before he was locked up, Renee told him she had forgiven him. It took a while, but her family eventually forgave him as well. And she began to tow the car that her daughter Megan was killed in around to area high schools, and she would talk about the power of forgiveness. But something was missing, and she knew it from the start, and that was Small Ridge. So she went to the local authorities, she went all the way up to the governor so that he might go with her to these meetings so that he could tell about the dangers of drinking and driving. The governor gave permission. So there he would stand in his bright orange jumpsuit telling about what drinking and driving would do, followed by Renee sharing the freeing power of forgiveness. In a news interview, she said, I could hate Eric Smallridge forever, but that's not going to bring Megan back. When it comes to forgiveness, it does not feel like it's the right thing to do. It does not match what you're feeling on the inside but it is the right thing to do. We live in a world where there's a lot of pain and heartache, and I want to promote love and forgiveness and try to break the cycle of hatred. Renee's work on Eric's behalf to the parole boards and to the governor eventually gained his release after serving nine years. And Christian singer Matthew West, known by many, wrote a song based on Renee's story, and he entitled it Forgiveness. The lyrics go like this. It's the hardest thing to give away, and the last thing on your mind today. It always goes to those who don't deserve. It's The opposite of how you feel when the pain they caused is just too real, it takes everything you have to say the word. Forgiveness. Show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Forgiveness. It'll clear the bitterness away. It can even set a prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do, so let it go and be amazed what you will see through the eyes of grace, the prisoner that it really frees, is you. There is freedom in second chances, but are you aware that God is also the God of last chances? In Luke 13, Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree. The owner had planted a fig tree and it takes about three years for them to leaf and to produce uh, fruit. So on the third year, he came, and he wanted some fruit from it, but there was none. So he said, cut it down. The gardener said, hold, hold just for another year. Let me tend to it, let me care for it, and in that next year, if it bears fruit, then we will keep it if it does not then we will cut it down. The tree was given a second chance. But in Mark 11, we're told that Jesus saw another fig tree that was in leaf, and he went himself to get a fig from it. But there were none, and so he cursed the tree. He said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now The next morning, they were going by the same way, and Peter had heard him say these words, and he looked, and the tree was withered and had died down all the way to the roots. And he said, Behold, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That tree had had its final chance. So how are we going to understand these things? First, some facts. In the Old Testament, the fig tree was often... Uh, a symbol that was used for the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, we see this among many, many other places. Second, the cursing of the fig tree was the, was the next day after the triumphal entry, and just four days before his crucifixion. Third, this story is placed directly adjacent to the Jewish leaders officially rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. In short, in cursing the fig tree, Jesus told His disciples that the whole nation of Israel was spiritually barren. They had the appearance, but they did not have the reality. They worked hard to keep the law but their hearts were far from God. So context here is, is most important. Jesus had offered the kingdom to Israel, and they had refused. Less than 24 hours earlier, it seemed that the people were going to accept Him. Hosanna! Baruch habab Shim, Adonai! they cried. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, God had patiently dealt with Israel since the time of Jacob, but second chances were running out. This was his final offer, but he was rejected. In Isaiah 53, we're told he was despised and rejected by men It was to him that chastisement that brought our peace. And with his words, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquities of us all on him. Israel's last chance had been squandered, lost. Or had it? Was that actually Israel's last chance? I mean, it is clear that the church was born out of these events, and Israel was almost immediately afterwards left to the whispers in the hallways of history. After all, within a generation, Israel as a nation ceased to exist. The church was now paramount in God's plan, and for the past millennium, most in the church have said, we are now Israel. Israel squandered their opportunities. They lost their chance. Israel is gone, forever gone. The church has taken Israel's place. You might be surprised to know that none of the church fathers saw it that way. They all believed that Israel had a future and so did John. As we look at Jerusalem and how it was destroyed in 70 AD, they had a government up until about 136 AD, but then the strangest thing happened. After they were gone from history's stage 1812, Years later, they became a nation again in 1948. Now, where there are many nations from antiquity, such as Greece or China or, or Egypt, I don't know of any nation that has disappeared off the face of the earth only to reappear some 1,800 years later. Why? Why? Biblically speaking, Israel is still a part of God's plan. I mean, in the Old Testament, you cannot read the Old Testament. You cannot read the prophets and not walk away with an understanding that Israel was always center stage. Even in the Gospels, Israel was the focus of attention. Jesus Himself in John 4 said, Salvation is of God the Jews, he corrected people when they even misunderstood. He sent out the 12 disciples to preach and he told them, go not, don't go to the Gentiles, don't do it. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You can read that in Matthew 10. Even the Apostle Paul, well after the church was established in his book to the Romans, devoted three entire chapters to Israel. In chapter uh, 9, he told how God dealt with Israel in the past. In chapter 10, he said that their present condition is a state of unbelief. But what did he do in chapter 11? In chapter 11, he clearly foretold the time when God would restore Israel. Again, to prominence among the nations of the earth. The Apostle Paul knew the difference between the church and Israel, and yet he said Israel has a future. What? We might ask. Didn't the church take Israel's place? The answer is no. We were grafted in, but God has a final chance, a future for Israel. In Revelation chapter 7, God declared what He intends to do and how He will do it. During our study of Revelation 6 last week, we watched the Lion of Judah, who turned to be the Lamb who had been slain, unroll the seven-sealed scroll. And we read as a part of that description of this great upheaval in nature and how the mountains were moved and how the rocks would fall and how the people of the earth cried out that fall on us and hide us from the wrath of Him who sits upon the throne. Instead of crying, Hosanna, Baruch Habab Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No, fall on us as if the rocks falling on them and ending their life would save them from the wrath of the one who sits upon the throne. Christians recognize the reality of a time of judgment to come. We are not pessimists. We are look to the bible and we see the realities that are there in verses one through three john says this after this that is after this uh, unrolling of the scrolls to the sixth the sixth seal and then we have this pause this interlude this intermission almost where we have chapter seven and we we look at this uh text where we have the uh Revealing of the 144,000, he says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Now, Revelation is a blend of literal and symbolic things and events. So there are certain symbols... That we see opening in this this chapter, the first one is a fan favorite of people who believe that Christians are flat earthers, and and the Bible is bunk. And this is one: the four corners of the earth. I uh, mean, <laughs> we still use that today. It's a it's a saying, and what it means is the four cardinal points of Uh, directions, And, and skeptics, you know, they laugh and they'll say these four corners, how can a spherical earth have corners? Now the interesting thing here is that the word that's translated as corner, because they're translating a phrase that everybody in almost every culture understands, is not the word for corner. There are five well and good Hebrew words that mean corner. This word means the extremities. What he's talking about is there is no place on earth that these angels cannot reach with the winds of wrath. The word that's used there, a Hebrew speaker would never misunderstand. So here we see the four angels withholding these four winds that are about to blow upon the earth. What they are restraining uh, is destruction. Winds are a symbol of devastating and destructive power. The pictures of destruction that we've all seen by tornadoes, I mean, last week, tornadoes ravaged through Texas and Oklahoma. And here is a picture of judgment that is about to fall upon the earth, the devastating power or force that's being held back is soon to be released. The land and the sea here are also symbols, as are the trees. The land uh, or the earth was often used, as the fig tree was, as a symbol for Israel because the land was seen as solid. The land was seen as solid because it was God who built the foundations of Israel. And yet what we see is the sea introduced as well. The sea is a symbol for the Gentile nations. Now why would that be? All you have to do one day is go walk out to the sea and the things that we love to see is the same picture that, causes him to use this as a symbol for nations, and that is the waves. They go up and they go down, and they shift left and they shift right. They're unstable. They're unstable in their foundations because the Lord is not at the center. Individuals are also, we see this uh, thing with trees. They're described in Scripture as trees. In fact, the very first psalm, most people, most people, People who have come to Christ and have known the Lord for just a few months know that for Psalm 1, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that bring forth its fruit in its season. Trees in this case are a symbol of people who are in authority. So what we see is that Israel, the nations and the leaders of Israel and the nations are going to be uh, freed for a time from the winds of this wrath. Now these four angels, as we'll see continuing in our study, are the first four of the seven angels that will blow their trumpets in succeeding chapters as we go on. And if you carefully observe what happens, what you'll see is that these four angels are, are going to affect the land, the sea, and the trees. But they're told to hold back, hold back until these individuals are sealed by God. Now as to the seal, we don't don't have to guess what it is, because as believers today, we are also sealed. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.30, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. I mean, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that is the unique mark of God's ownership over us. Paul declares in Romans eight sixteen, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit is the seal of God. Now these 144,000 that will be sealed, are filled with the holy spirit and they're specifically called servants of our god they're willing to give up everything of themselves for the sake and benefit of others and the seal that's on their forehead the location of it you know that may be something that makes them easily identifiable but more likely it's an indication of the spirit as it relates to their minds surely as in Uh, Philippians 2, 5, they are governed by the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, 5, Paul writes, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Then in verses 4 through 8 we read this, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I could preach another entire sermon just on those things right there. Did you notice that Levi was included? Did you notice that Dan was left out? There are a number of things here that are significant, which I can't take the time to emphasize, but I want to emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, what the overarching point is that is this, Israel, 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 and only Israel is in view. Many preachers labor diligently to prove that the 144,000 are members of the Church, but when God says Israel, He means Israel. He doesn't mean the Church. God, as the Apostle Paul knows the difference between the two. There is so much exegetical gymnastics going on when it comes to apocalyptic literature, when it comes to prophecy. It's so easy to lose your way. But the way that you stay anchored is simply by clinging to the beautiful simplicity of Scripture itself. It's all clear. These 144,000 are Jews of the last days. And Matthew 24, and you've got to understand that Jesus was talking about the future. He was talking about the end times when He said this. There's a statement that He makes that strongly correlates to these 144,000. Jesus said, "'This gospel of the kingdom "'will be preached to the whole world "'as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Words are important. Gospel of the kingdom is important. My wife gave me a a joke the other day that she'd found uh, on Facebook. There's a man, he's standing in front of a mirror, and he's holding his hands out. He's in a store, and he's just uh, standing there waiting, and he says, I'll I'll give it five more minutes, uh, and then I'll do it myself. Because above the mirror was a sign that said, Employees must wash hands. (laughs) So what you have here is something that has to be understood. And it's understood in what? In context. The gospel of the kingdom. Understand this, the gospel of God is the story of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Whether it's told by symbol, whether it's told by ritual, or by announcement of the Lord Himself, uh, as He did to the disciples in the early days of the Church, the Gospel is always the same. The death of Christ on our behalf. However... When one adds the phrase of the kingdom, then it changes to a reference applied to a specific relationship. Now, follow me here. Don't lose me because I'm talking about you know the gospel is the gospel. But of the kingdom, that, that makes it mean something something else. John the Baptist and Jesus both, preached the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. What was that? What was the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel is the gospel, right? They announced this, the messianic kingdom long prophesied was at hand because the very king was with them. In their midst, Jesus declared to Israel, that he was the Messiah, but he was not the Messiah the Jews expected. The Jews, like John in Revelation 5, expected the Lion of Judah to come on his big horse with his sword and run the Romans out and allow Israel to take their prominent place in the world. But when they saw the Messiah as he was, they saw the Lamb that was slain and they could not reconcile it. But he was their long expected king. In fact, he deliberately fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 9 9. Behold, your king comes unto you, meek and lowly, and riding upon a donkey, upon a foal of a donkey, on Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry, which had just happened earlier, as we mentioned. This group of 144,000 select from Israel will fulfill the word of Jesus that it is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Now, He's already come. But in the tribulation, He will come again. And that, is something that they're going to preach. I mean, it was like, it'd be like if you had 144,000 Apostle Pauls out there preaching day and night in all kinds of weather because they knew what? They know that the time is short, that this is the last chance, there are no more second chances. What's the result of their preaching? So we're told in Revelation 7, 7, 9 through uh, and forth following, After this I looked, and behold, a great number that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We have to understand something here, and that is that John is in heaven, and he saw these things from an eternal perspective, with no sequence or time limitations, no past, no future. He was able to see, from our standpoint, we see everything as sequential, God does not see things that way. God can have the span of history with one glance, with one look. And John sees in this way just a little bit where he was able to see to the close of the seven years. He looks ahead to the end of that time and he sees this great multitude that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And guess what they have in their hands? palm branches the chance that Israel would not take when Jesus Christ was among them in the flesh these have taken during the time of his wrath and they wave the palm branches and they say Baruch Habab Adonai blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord except for They're now there in front of the throne. And what they say is glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor. Israel had the opportunity, but the nation rejected Him. But now they welcome, now they worship. So this great multitude of Jews and Gentiles... Are all martyrs, It's what the scripture tells us later on in the book of Revelation. And they're all before the Lord. The throne of God is victors over death and hell. And they join in worship as one with the angels around the throne. I mean, think of it. In earth's darkest hour yet to come... God gives the last chance, which is also the greatest harvest the world has ever seen. Millions will be saved. Then we find in the closing description of their ministry these wonderful words, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the fulfillment of the dream. That the prophets had of the past. Israel shall blossom as the rose and fill the earth with blessing. The nation is going to be like a beautiful vineyard and a vine that runs. I know I'm slipping over into the millennium here, but nevertheless, it's going to run its branches and its fruit throughout the earth and bless the nations just as Abraham had been promised. And yes, the promise to the nations has been through Jesus Christ and to us, but there is yet another blessing to come. In chapter 66 of Isaiah, we're told that those associated with them and among them are thousands upon thousands of Gentiles who will likewise serve the Lord day and night in the temple. Alike, Jews and Gentiles. But you know what's more wonderful than even that? Sinners, one and all, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jeffrey Dahmer, many of you know his name, was a heinous murderer. He was convicted and sentenced to 16 life sentences. He hated God. It had all the second chances anyone would ever want to give him. But Pastor Roy Ratcliffe thought different. He believed not only in second chances, but last chances. While in prison, Dahmer converted to Jesus Christ, and Roy baptized him in prison. Many scoff at jailhouse conversions, But soon, people began to notice the change. His father, who had left the church, was restored. His younger brother, who had abandoned God, was converted to Christ. It wasn't long after that that Dahmer was killed in prison by a fellow inmate. And at his memorial service among his own family and others were some Christian members from some of the victims whom he had killed. Dahmer had been given a last chance and he took it. Now many of us think he shouldn't have gotten any chances at all. In fact, one college professor after reading an article in Christianity Today by Pastor Ratcliffe said, if he is in heaven, I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to go because that means that God is not just. Well, I'll tell you what, he didn't deserve a second chance. He didn't deserve a last chance. But neither do you, and neither did I. If we think that we are more deserving of heaven... Than Dahmer, we do not fully understand the power of sin. Was he worse than you and me? Absolutely. By a mile, by a hundred miles, pick a number, by light years. But that's not the standard, is it? The standard is the righteousness of Christ. And no one meets that, not on their own. Metaphorically, he was the fig tree that had provided no fruit, but was given a chance for one more year. He was not deserving. Israel was, is, not deserving. But then neither are we. So then today, in the sound of my voice, you are being given a second chance. Take it now. Because one day, your second chance will be your last. Father, we are so grateful that you are the God who... Even after all seems lost, everything was lost in Israel. The nation was undone. The promises to the kingdom lay barren for millennia. Yet out of the ashes, you are bringing her back, and you yet have a future for her. Lord, the same is true with us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die so that we might have life and life abundant. We look forward to the day when we're with you in glory. And until then, We will praise you and thank you for the forgiveness, for the salvation, for the life that you give to us through Christ our Lord, amen.